coming up. How can it be that the Army is at war and the nation is not? The military. What is it good for? We have a military that's A, very small, all volunteer, and relative to the size of the economy, relatively inexpensive. So it can be deployed without the civil society in whose name it fights breaking a sweat. Has the all-volunteer army become an army of mercenaries? We, comfortable members of the middle class, are in effect hiring some of our least advantaged fellow citizens to do some of our dirtiest work for us. Should the draft be reinstated? How many children of the 535 elected members of the United States Congress were in service? The answer is 10. Is the concept of the citizen-soldier an outmoded relic of a bygone era? Our guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning historian David Kennedy. I think we do have legitimate interests out there in the world, and on occasion we need force to uh, secure those interests. The military, what's it good for? Coming up on Philosophy Talk. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the Marsh Theater, San Francisco's breeding ground for new performance. We're continuing conversations that began at Stanford University at Philosopher's Corner. Welcome, everyone, to Philosophy Talk. (laughs) And our conversation today is about the military, and we're asking... What is it good for? Well, Ken, I got a Swiss army knife, so even Switzerland needs an army. Clearly, a vast and populous nation like ours has to have a military. But even if we take it as granted, John, that any nation, most especially a nation that wants to be a significant player on the world stage, is going to have a military of some sort, that still leaves lots of questions open. What kind of military should we have exactly? Maybe a compact military that will deal with homeland defense, but nothing else? Or a large, robust force capable of projecting power around the globe. And who should serve in the military? Should all able-bodied citizens be compelled to serve? Or should we leave it up to volunteers? To whom should the military be accountable? And how exactly can it be held to account? And do we civilians owe our military leaders a high degree of deference? It's kind of like Goldilocks' problem. If the military is too big and powerful, if civilian authorities show it too much respect, then there's a real danger of militarism. But if the military is too small and if it has too little influence over decision-making by civilian leaders, well, that can lead to disaster, too. So we need a military that's just the right size, that strikes just the right balance between deference and accountability. Uh, Striking that delicate balance, John, that sounds like a hard job. But it sounds like a job for some wise policymakers. What what are a couple of philosophers like us doing worrying about the military and its role in public life? Well, now, there's a dangerous path to go down. (laughs) But I, I guess the answer is that, look, I mean, we as a democracy collectively decide about the proper role, size, composition, and degree and accountability of the armed services. It goes to the very heart of our democracy, and philosophers like everyone else should think about it. Are we going to be a society where the military functions as an instrument of the will of the people at large? Or a society where the military functions as a special class unto itself with its own agenda? And no one except maybe a narrow civilian elite knows what's going on. If we are to remain a true democracy, we can't afford to leave these questions to the military, nor even just to our elected leaders. We all have a vital stake in them. Now, one way to make 
people fully own up to their responsibilities here is to go back to having a draft. Uh, That's a point there. I mean, if military service were compulsive and universal, certainly, without a doubt, the general population would feel a more visceral personal stake in deciding what use the military is put to. And that might make it harder for politicians and generals to persuade us to spend our treasure and spill our blood on fools' errands, not to mention any in particular, in the first place. Well, you know, that's part of what drove Nixon to end the draft, I think. He ended the draft not because he was a liberal do-gooder, but because he wanted a freer hand to conduct the war in Vietnam as he pleased. He realized that if it's my blood or the blood of my loved ones that's going to be involved, I might stand up and protest, particularly if I think it's a a silly war and the blood is spilled in vain. And if it's only the blood of the already willing that's being spilled, even if it's being spilled in vain, there's bound to be less hue and cry. Putting Nixon's self-interested political calculations aside, though, A voluntary army, an army of the willing, seems like a good thing, not a bad thing. Sometimes a nation may legitimately have to wage a war of a somewhat morally ambiguous character in which the clean and decisive outcome is far from assured. Why should we force unwilling conscripts to fight and die in that kind of a situation? Shared burdens, John. I mean, sometimes you have to share in the burdens of nationhood, even if you don't want to. Look, nobody likes to pay taxes. Nobody. But we don't say, well, let's tax only the willing. Leave it to the willing. This is the same with military service. Well, sometimes the willing really aren't so willing after all. You don't see that many wealthy or upper middle class kids. Kids with, that went to Stanford or other elite places or people that have great jobs, you don't see those people volunteering to be on active duty. Uh, you know, these are complicated issues, and I think there's a lot to talk about. To make our discussions more fruitful, we'll be joined by someone who provides a broad historical perspective on the military and what it's good for. That's Pulitzer Prize-winning historian David Kennedy, author of Freedom from Fear, The American People in Depression and War. He'll join us in a little bit. We'd also like the perspective of our live audience here at the Marsh. But first, a roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Esch, talks to a Vietnam veteran who went through the draft process. She files this report. The Draft Lottery, a live report on tonight's picking of the birthdays for the draft. Here at Selective Service Headquarters in Washington... Of the troops fighting in the Vietnam War, 25% were drafted. Good evening. It was 29 years ago that the first and most famous lottery number, 158, was drawn as the United States entered World War II. My draft number was 127 out of 365. Rick Collins works at the VA Center in Oakland, California. He was in his 20s when he went before the draft board back in 1970. Well, they went the whole thing about uh, wanting to know what I did and and letting me know that they were ready to make me 1A so that I could serve my country. And they were going through all types of uh, machinations to try to make me feel uncomfortable. None of the people out there looked like my neighbors except for one guy. They were mostly older white guys, and they were the ones who were making the decisions. Collins is African-American. He grew up in a working-class neighborhood in Philadelphia. He says, standing before the draft board, he felt like his life was in their hands. Well, nobody fled to Canada from my neighborhood. Where Collins grew up, military service was an honorable profession. His father was in the military. Most of the people in my neighborhood were in the military. They were either drafted or they enlisted to get ahead of the draft, to have some choice about what service they went into. So in the end, Collins volunteered. 
he had a commission to serve as a social worker counseling soldiers fighting in Vietnam, many of whom were severely traumatized by the war. He says when he was young, he didn't really think twice about the draft. Getting drafted was a rite of passage for most of the young men in the area. Colin says some of the old-timers who were drafted in earlier wars want to see the draft reinstated. They say it inspires patriotism, and there's something to the idea that every citizen should carry the burden of protecting a country. But Colin says he doesn't think it could ever work in this society, in part because we no longer feel threatened. When we had the draft before, uh, World War II, uh, there was obviously a threat. And then we had the threat of uh, worldwide communism. Uh, That doesn't exist now, which is why just about all of uh, America's allies have gotten rid of the draft. And without a threat, there's no real motivation. I don't get the sense that there was this feeling of uh, everybody wanting to pitch in or everybody needing to pitch in. Even though fewer and fewer Americans have any connection to the military, Collins believes societal attitudes are shifting again towards support of veterans, not an attitude he saw much of during his youth. I can remember from Vietnam, then to when I was mobilized during Desert Storm, there was a whole sort of change uh, where people had actually called me a baby killer during the time I was in the military. But I can remember after Desert Storm, people would walk up and shake your hand and want to talk to you. And, and if you made the mistake and went to a bar in uniform when you're someplace else on a, on a mission, then people would want to buy a drink and stuff like that. Collins prefers a volunteer army because he believes people who want to be there will do a better job. And as long as Americans support their veterans, people will want to serve. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.